will speak of the second half and culmination, climax, of the celebration of the Divine Liturgy, the Liturgy of the Eucharist itself, the Liturgy of the Eucharistic Offering. We've said that the Liturgy may be considered as a journey to the Kingdom of God, the first part of which consists of, as we've discussed already, the gathering together of the assembly to become the body of Christ, to welcome Christ coming both in the person of the priest and also in the presence of Christ in his word in, in the Holy Gospel. And now with this essential act of hearing the word of God complete, what remains is that we enter into the ultimate in terms of, of this world, the ultimate and most intense, we can say, experience of the church of Christ being present in her midst as not only bridegroom and head of the body, but also as priest and victim, the life-giving sacrifice, whose sacrifice of his own life to death and, and in his resurrection is going to be made present in the Eucharistic offering. So we, we begin this evening with, with the transition between uh, these two halves of the liturgy, the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And we have, at least in our uh, local practice here, uh, two prayers that are said. In some places, uh, there may be even more than these two prayers that are said. And the first prayer is for the catechumens. The second prayer is for the faithful. But again, uh, we need to uh, consider the liturgy as it was celebrated in the early centuries of the church during, those, during that period when our, our church services were formed. And we would have witnessed uh, quite a series of things at this transition between the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. First, uh, the catechumens would be called forward and they would be prayed for, as we do in the words of, the, of this prayer, O Lord our God, who dwell on high and watch over the humble, who sent forth as the salvation of the human race, your only begotten Son and God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Look upon your servants, the catechumens, who have bowed their necks before you. Make them worthy in due time of the laver of regeneration, the remission of sins the robe of incorruption, unite them to your holy Catholic and apostolic church and number, us with your, number them with your chosen flock. Then after this prayer would be said, then the catechumens, and this is something that uh, did not endure to, to our present time, something that's not done in the church these days, the catechumens would then be dismissed. They would leave. Then after that, uh, those who were going to be received into the church at the next Pascha, uh, the, the candidates, as they were called, those preparing for holy illumination, they would be called forward, they would be prayed for, and then they would be dismissed. And then those who, in, who as members of the church, because they had fallen into sin and were passing through a period of penance, where they, they would be excluded from Holy Communion and, and through, through going through acts of repentance, including being excluded from the Eucharistic Assembly, were preparing to be healed and reunited to the church, they would be called forward and, and dismissed also. So there would be a, a series of callings forward, prayings over, and dismissings of those who, who could not be present for the Eucharistic Assembly. Even in some of the old service books, uh, there's, there is a prayer for those who are, who are tormented by evil spirits, and they would also be called forward and, and, and prayed for and, and dismissed also. So this, this now seems a very small thing, the way we do it now. We don't dismiss anybody. We allow everyone to remain for the Eucharistic Assembly. But it's good for us to remember that through a, a large portion of, of the life of the, many, many centuries in the life of the early church, the Eucharist was literally a closed assembly. 
It was limited to those who could take part in it and receive the holy gifts of the body and blood of Christ. That is what sealed their membership in the church, the receiving of, of the Eucharistic sacrifice. And if there was anyone who could not receive, then they could not be present. And it was even thought that it was not good uh, for, for those to be present who could not receive that rather they should be prayed for by the church until the time came where they could be present for the Eucharistic assembly. So it's good for us to remember now, even though we don't do this anymore, that presence at the offering of the Eucharist and the receiving of communion should always be, should always be understood as the sign, the evidence that we are set apart from the world that the church by its very name, the, the ecclesia, the, the very word means, as we've said already, the assembly of those who are called out from the world, that there is a division between this world and the church, that when we come together to be the church most intensely in the Eucharistic gathering, we are leaving the world behind. And so the, the next prayer, which is the prayer that is said after, for the faithful, and, and what's intended here is that it would be said after everyone who is not the faithful is no longer present, only, only the faithful remain. In fact, by the way, you can, you can go to some Orthodox churches that even though they don't literally make the, make the catechumens leave, they still go through the motions of saying the words of the dismissal. Maybe if some of you have visited other churches, you've heard the deacon say, all catechumens depart, catechumens depart, let no catechumen remain, they do that. Uh, let, and let us the faithful, now again and again in peace, pray to the Lord. And then we have this prayer for the faithful in, in, uh, some, in, in the service books that give the full text of the liturgy with all the prayers, which in, in many churches now a selection of prayers is taken. There are actually two prayers for the faithful. And in, in our practice here, we have one of them here. Often and again, we fall down before you and implore you, O gracious Lord and lover of mankind, to regard our prayer and to purify our souls and bodies from all defilement of flesh and spirit. So we ask to be purified from everything in us that is of the fallenness of the world. And why? Grant that we may stand before your holy altar without guilt or condemnation. So something crucial is about to happen. And as always, the same pattern that's followed when we are going to approach the holy God, when we are going to stand in the presence of God, we ask to be cleansed of that which is sinful within us. And grant us, O God, and those praying with us, progress or growth, I think growth would actually be a better translation here, growth in life, faith, and spiritual understanding. Grant that they may always worship you and partake of your holy mysteries. This is the first time now in the liturgy that reference is made to the partaking of the holy mysteries. And that expression, holy mysteries, always refers, in this case, to, to the holy gifts of bread and wine in, in which will be manifested the body and blood of Christ. With fear and love, just as right before communion is going to be given, when the deacon brings out the chalice to the people, he says, with fear and, and love and with faith, draw near. All those things must go together. Without guilt or condemnation, and that they may be made worthy of your heavenly kingdom. So we pray to be cleansed from evil and to be counted worthy to partake of that which we can never of ourselves be worthy of. It's with the, this prayer that the introduction to the Eucharistic offering takes place. And then we have the beginning of actualizing, I think that's the best word to use, making present what the Lord did on the night in which he offered himself for the life of the world. And the rest of the liturgy, the liturgy of the Eucharist, can be understood as making that present. We're told that at the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus did 
three, and in the case of, of the bread, that he took four things. That first, he took it, and all the accounts of the Last Supper are very careful in, in following this progression. Also, the account of the Eucharist that's given by St. Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians. In the case of both the bread and the cup, he takes it, then he blesses it or offers it, then in the case of the bread, he breaks it, and then he gives it. So every celebration of the Eucharist and what we do now consists essentially of that, the taking, the offering, the breaking, and the giving, doing what the Lord does because it is what he does at the Last Supper, and I'm speaking in the present intentionally, at the one liturgy that is made present now. So the first act that we have to speak of, which, uh, we, which we call uh, in, in our celebration of the liturgy the great entrance, or the bringing of the gifts of bread and wine to the altar, that is the taking he took. And a number of things now in the liturgy happen at the same time. First of all, the people are going to sing a hymn. It's the hymn that's called the Cherubic Hymn, and its words are, we who mystically represent the cherubim, or sometimes it's, it's put like this, let us who mystically represent the cherubim, and sing to the life-giving trinity the thrice holy hymn, let us now lay aside all earthly cares. And then, if you're following in, in this liturgy book, the hymn concludes several pages later, if you look on page 32, in the middle of the page, that we may receive the king of all, who comes invisibly upborne by the angelic hosts, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. That one text, uh, let us, we, we who mystically represent the cherubim up to, let us now lay aside all earthly cares, concludes that we may receive the king of all who comes invisibly upborne by the angelic hosts. And so between the beginning and the end of that hymn, uh, there's going to be a lot that's going on in the liturgy. Now notice two things about this hymn. First of all, as so many of the liturgical hymns do, it speaks about heaven, the worship that is in heaven. It talks about us doing something that wouldn't perhaps necessarily come so naturally to our lips. Uh, we, we are mystically representing the cherubim. What does it mean to mystically represent the cherubim? The cherubim are those angels of, that are described in the scripture as having many eyes that continually engage in the worship of God without ceasing so that what they do before the throne of God in heaven, we mystically, by entering into the presence of God, do on earth. We are doing what they do. We who mystically represent the cherubim, singing to the life-giving trinity the thrice holy hymn, to do that, to do what the hosts of heavenly beings, the heavenly church is doing, we have to lay aside all earthly cares. So it is the call to the church before entering into the Eucharistic offering to lay aside in the spirit, on the level of the mind, within the heart, within the, within the uh, attention, to guard the interior of ourselves so that we can lay aside everything that, that we cling to in this life so that we can be focused on what we are called to do and that is to receive the king of all. Christ is coming to be with us. He comes invisibly upborne by the hosts of angels. So heaven and earth are going to be united. The king, Christ is the king of angels and he also is the king of the human race and he is going to come to us now personally in the Eucharistic offering. So while the people sing that hymn of preparation and welcoming, the priest says a prayer. 
And this prayer is a unique prayer. We're back on page 29 here. Nearly all of the other prayers of the celebration of the Divine Liturgy, the priest prays in the name of the people for everyone. This prayer is unique. You never hear this prayer said out loud. The priest says it in a low voice while the people are singing the cherubic hymn. The reason why is this is one of the prayers of the liturgy that the priest is praying for himself alone because he will be uniquely the human means through whom Christ will make himself present as the one who offers and as the one who is offered. And I want to read this prayer through because it sums up in many ways what we, what we know, what we believe, what we experience in the liturgy. This is the priest praying for himself. No one bound by fleshly desires and pleasures is worthy to approach or come near or minister before you, the King of glory, when every priest prays that prayer, he knows that it refers uniquely and especially to himself at that moment. For to serve you is great and awesome, even to the heavenly powers themselves. Yet because of your unspeakable and immeasurable love for mankind, you became man without undergoing change or alteration, and taking the title High Priest, you as Lord of all, have committed to us the celebration of this liturgical sacrifice without the shedding of blood. And by the way, this is the first, this is one of the times that this expression, without the shedding of blood, is used to refer to the action that takes place in the liturgy. On the one hand, the liturgy is truly a sacrifice. The Eucharist is the sacrifice of Christ himself, who gives his own body and blood for the life of the world. It is not a repetition of the one sacrifice over and over and over again. Rather, it is the making present in a manner without the shedding of blood. Sometimes uh, this has been translated, unfortunately, as uh, the unbloody sacrifice or the, even the bloodless sacrifice. Neither of those ways of translating it are accurate because clearly the blood of Christ is made present in the, sacri in, in, the, in the sacrifice, but not with a new shedding of blood. Christ, risen from the dead, dies now no more. He is not going to be slain again. Rather, his death is going to be made present in a manner without the shedding of blood. For you alone, Lord our God, rule over all things in heaven and earth. You are seated upon the throne of the cherubim and our Lord of the seraphim and King of Israel, who alone are holy and rest in the saints. Therefore, I implore you, who alone are good and ready to hear, look upon me, your sinful and unprofitable servant. See this contrast between the sinfulness, the mortality, the weakness of the human vessel that is now called to, an to do an unspeakably high thing that is beyond the angels. Look upon me, your sinful and unprofitable servant, and cleanse my soul and heart from an evil conscience and enable me by the power of your Holy Spirit, clothed with the grace of the priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, to stand before this your holy table and to consecrate your holy and spotless body and precious blood. For to you I come, bowing my neck, and I pray to you, do not turn away your face from me, nor reject me from among your children, but make me your sinful and unworthy servant worthy to offer these gifts to you. Only one is worthy. Only one is holy. He alone can make human vessels worthy to do what is about to be done. For you alone are the offerer, the one who offers, that is the priest, and the offered, the sacrificial victim. Christ is both the priest and the victim that is offered. The receiver, because at no point throughout his, his passion and death and burial does Christ cease to be God on the throne with the Father and the Spirit. The receiver and the distributed. 
the one who will be given, O Christ our God. And we give glory to you together with your Father who is without beginning and your all-holy good and life-giving spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So this prayer sums up that this gift of Christ giving himself because he has no greater gift to offer than himself. Not simply a remembrance in terms of calling to mind something that in the past, but it was in the past, but now is over with, but truly the last will and testament given by Christ to his people at the Last Supper before passing out of this world and rising to the new life. He gives himself. And our only response, especially not in isolation from, from the people, but, but especially and intensely, the human priest, the priest who will be the one through whom this actualization of Christ's sacrifice will be made present, must be prayed to be cleansed from his unworthiness and to be made worthy through the worthiness of Christ. And then while the people are singing and the priest is saying his prayer, the deacon is again incensing the altar and the icons and the people. Again, the incense as the sign of the prayer ascending and the cleansing that this prayer is asking for, preparation to receive the coming of Christ as priest and victim. Then, the priest, when he's said that prayer, he bows and kisses the altar, and then he, he turns to the people, bows to them, and asks their forgiveness. Just as he has asked forgiveness from God, he turns to the people whom he has called to serve and asks their forgiveness also. And then he goes to the table of preparation, and as we said before, in the early centuries of the church, that would, that would have actually meant uh, going to the separate building that was outside the church where the people had brought the bread and wine and the bread and wine would have been prepared for the liturgy. And there, another prayer is said at the table of preparation. O Lord God, ruler of all, who alone are holy, who accept a sacrifice of praise from those who call upon you with all their heart, receive also the prayer of us sinners and bring us to your holy altar and make us worthy to offer you gifts and spiritual sacrifices for our sins and for the errors of your people. Grant us to find grace in your eyes so that our sacrifice may be acceptable to you and that the good spirit of your grace may rest on us and on all your people and on these gifts set before you. And the priest, having said that prayer, he gives the discourse with, with the bread that's been prepared to the deacon, and he takes the chalice himself. And then we have that procession that is called the great entrance when the gifts and, of bread and wine are taken to be placed on the altar. That, that crucial act of taking these material substances of bread and wine and placing them on the altar of God, which is the equivalent of Christ taking them at the Last Supper, the first act of the offering. Now, we have to consider these gifts of bread and wine. Why? They are the means chosen by Christ to make his life-giving sacrificial death present. For us to understand that, we have to first look at them on the human level. I think we've said this before, but now is the time to say it here, that we offer in the Eucharist bread and wine because they most perfectly represent our humanity. We do not offer simple products of nature. We don't offer wheat and grapes. We offer what only the human being can do by sharing the creativity that, that God has given us being made in his image and likeness. We have taken these substances of nature and through, through the human means that we have been given, we have transformed them into something else. The wheat has been transformed into bread. The grapes have been transformed into wine. We are the only created being that does something like that. 
The animals don't do it. The angels don't do it. Spiritual creation doesn't do it. Only we do something like that. They testify to our humanity. They stand most perfectly for us in two ways. They are food. We cannot exist without food and drink. Bread is the most basic food. And it's interesting that we don't use the most basic liquid, which is water. Rather, we use that which is taken from nature to become, as the psalm says that we sing every Saturday evening, that which makes glad the heart of man. Again, not, a, not simply a naturally occurring substance, but something that has come forth from our, from our wisdom and creativity and, and through the blessing of God. So. These human substances that test, that stand for us and through us stand for all creation, the whole cosmos made by God, Christ takes and he does something additional with them. He makes them the signs of his death. We say that in the Eucharist, we remember the death of the Lord until he comes. The Lord who wanted to give himself to us as our food, he, he chose that means, not, a, not an intellectual means, but a very physical one, to show that we depend on him for our very being, that our salvation and eternal life depend on whether or not we have him in us as our food. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But before that body of Christ becomes the eternal risen one who dies no more, it, 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 he is first offered in sacrifice for us. And that is why the Lord chooses both means, both the bread and the wine, both the food and the drink, the body and the blood, the bread, the sign of the body, the wine, the sign of the blood, both of them the signs of life. But the Lord deliberately chooses them to be offered distinctly. Why? because in the Holy Eucharist, his death is made present. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And the bread and wine are offered in their separate distinctness to show us, to, to reveal, to make manifest to us that the Lord's sacrifice for us involved the separation of his body and blood the outpouring of his blood, the draining of his blood from his body. And when, and when the body and the blood are, are separate, there is death. We, we, if we take the blood out of our bodies, there will be no life left. And so the Lord takes these signs of human life to be the signs of his death. And his death is unlike any other death in that it is the voluntary death of the incarnate God who offers himself up out of love for the life of the world, and it will be the life-giving death. But that is why the Lord chooses both these means, both these signs, to make his sacrifice present. Then, as the bread and wine are carried to the altar, the priest and the deacon have prayers of petition in which they ask the Lord to remember all of us and to remember the bishop, to remember the civil authorities, as the Apostle Paul has commanded us to do, to remember all the members of the church, especially those who are sick and suffering, and to remember those who have died. So we are, we are doing here uh, already as the gifts are being carried to the altar, uh, what we will say when we, when we lift them in the elevation before the altar when they are offered for everyone and for everything. The liturgy is the sacrifice of praise, Christ's own sacrifice offered for everyone and for everything. So the bread and wine are placed on the altar. They are covered 
the veil always being the sign of mystery, that what is covered, what is beneath the veil, just as it is said of us, uh, that we are hidden, we are dead, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are dead in this world. All of us who, who have been baptized have died with Christ, and we all live underneath the veil until the end of time when, there, when what is hidden will be revealed. So the sign that Christ's presence among us in this world is a hidden presence, a veiled presence, one that is perceived through the eyes of faith until the end of the world. That's what the veiling uh, reveals to us. Reveals to us. And then, then the gifts placed on the altar are honored by, by being incensed. Before we can proceed, now that we, ha we have done the first thing that the Lord does in the Eucharistic offering, the taking of the gifts, before they can be offered, before they can be blessed, two things must happen. We must reveal, we must show to ourselves that we are the disciples of Christ. They will know you are my disciples, said Jesus, by your love for one another. What would show his disciples to be who they were was that they would love one another as he had loved them, as he loves us. Not simply an exchange of a human greeting, not simply a kind of pledge of friendship, but the love that the Christians are to have for one another, and St. John makes it very clear that this love is what defines everything else in the church. What does he say? It's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. It is that love that makes the church the church. The love of Christ has gathered us together. Let us rejoice in him and be glad, a hymn of the church says. So we have this exchange of the holy kiss, as the scriptures always speak of that greeting that, that from the beginning was, was exchanged among the, the disciples of Christ. Greet one another with a holy kiss, St. Paul says. And that is what we must do. First the priest blesses with the peace of Christ, and then the deacon invites uh, everyone to share the holy kiss. Let us love one another that with one accord we may confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one in essence and undivided. And then we exchange the kiss of peace. Now, it's the kiss of peace in the 2,000 years of the church's history has, had, uh, uh, has, has undergone some suffering, you know. Uh, always being considered an essential aspect of the liturgy in, in the early centuries. It, in many parts of the, of, the, uh, of the church, beginning in the Middle Ages, fell into disuse. And the kiss of peace was exchanged only by the clergy at the altar. And if one goes to many Orthodox churches today, you uh, can see that that's still the case. But also in our own time, there have been many churches that have restored this very essential practice of the exchange of, of the kiss of peace among all the people. But we need to be aware what it essentially is. It is not a human greeting. That's why it has a liturgical form. It is a liturgical act. That's why we use that greeting, Christ is in our midst, he is and shall be. It is because Christ loves us that we are able to love one another. It is because Christ has forgiven us that we are able to forgive one another. Without that, it's always the level of the merely human with all its failures and limitations. So it is the confession of the presence of Christ in one another that we're called to do at the kiss of peace. That's why in churches that, that have restored it, vigilance needs to always be taken, that it, that it doesn't degenerate to this kind of uh, you know, backslapping human greeting and, and even casual conversation. They had problem with that in the early church, too. That's why one of the reasons why it kind of fell into disuse after a while. Uh, 
I think that I think that it needs to be done as it is in our church here but it needs to be done with the proper understanding with the proper experience that we are called here to greet our brother and sister with the same reverence that we are going to be called later to receive the body and blood of Christ personally that never in the liturgical assembly is anyone or anything treated with superficiality in a shallow way. So, so all the members of the church need to have that in mind when they, when they exchange the kiss. And also to understand that as the Lord himself teaches us in the gospel, that this kiss is to be a sincere kiss a kiss without hypocrisy, a, a kiss that bears witness that we are of one mind and one heart, a kiss that reveals that we do love and forgive one another. That's why the Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you bring your gift to the altar and you know that your brother has something against you, that first you must be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's interesting that in the... Uh, the manuals uh, of instructions that are given to the priests that tell them everything they have to do uh, in order to celebrate the liturgy. Before it talks about uh, the prayers that are to be said in preparation for the liturgy, before it talks about the necessity to fast before the liturgy, the very first thing it says concerning the priest about to celebrate the liturgy, and this applies not only to the priest, it, it uh, applies to everyone, he who is to celebrate the Lord's mysteries must be at peace with all men and have nothing against anyone. That is the criterion for entering into the sacrifice of Christ. That means that we have to have the desire for that. We have to remember that peace reconciliation, forgiveness, love even, cannot depend completely on the emotions or the feelings. When there is, when there is division among people, there must be the desire to heal that division. And, we, and when we are, when, there, when we should be, if we should be at strife with someone, we must do everything in our power to heal that. If it cannot be, completely healed and we've done everything that we can to try to heal it. We must pray for those who can continue to be offended with us and we must not do or say anything that would increase the trouble that there is. But forgiveness, as the saints tell us over and over and over again, comes from the will, comes from the desire. The emotions and the feelings will cooperate later. But the kiss of peace bears witness to the essential need for, for this reconciliation and beyond reconciliation for there to be this bond of love, loving one another with the sacrificial love, giving one's life for one another. We need to remember that, especially uh, perhaps in, in our time, which is characterized either by large churches or even when churches are small, uh, people often not even seeing much of each other, not even seeing much of the brothers and sisters who are members of the church. How different that is from the life of the early church, where it was, it was clearly understood, not simply in the mind, but lived out day in, day out, that, that the love that we have for one another reaches its, its proof in laying down our lives for one another. That's, that's what the relationship between every member of the body of Christ is called to be. The kiss of peace is the sign of that. So that's the first act that there must be before the uh, Eucharistic offering. The second act must be the profession of faith in the creed. Even the kiss of peace is introduced with, let us love one another, that with one mind we may confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, not let us love one another so that simply we can be a nice, a nice cozy uh, human club in this world, nice, a nice enjoyable human society of people that at least some of the time likes each other's company. But rather, let us love one another so that we may know God who is love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So love and faith, it is with love and faith that we must offer the Eucharistic offering. So first, the sign of love through the kiss of peace. Then second, the sign of faith through the profession of the faith in the words of the creed.
Having done that, we enter into the center, the heart of the liturgy. That act that is called the anaphora, it's a word that everybody in the church should, should know the meaning of. Anaphora simply means to lift up. The anaphora is the central prayer of the liturgy. It is the blessing, the offering of the sacrifice of Christ. It begins with the invitation of the deacon. By the way, before I go on to it, though, I should, I should just say a, a few words about how the creed is introduced by another, the last time that, that we're brought to mind that we're separated from the world. You know, the deacon says, the doors, the doors, in wisdom let us attend. Well, the reason why he says the doors, the doors, is by that time, everybody that was not in, a member of the church had left, and now the doors are going to be guarded. They were in the early church. You know how we have now in the church we have readers and we have cantors and we have subdeacons and we have deacons. In the early church they also had a group of people who were ordained to be doorkeepers. And that's exactly what they did. And that means that during the central action of the liturgy, during the Eucharistic offering, nobody can come in. And by the way, nobody could go out either. It's, the world is closed out and we, we are with Christ in his kingdom at his table. Uh, that, that needs to be borne in mind sometimes with the ease of our moving around in our churches these days. The anaphora begins with the invitation of the deacon, and this is, this should, this is always something good to teach us. Uh, not simply let us stand, but let us stand well. Let's see, uh, there's, there's standing, and there's standing well, that's, that standing, uh, not, uh, not at military attention, but, but standing attentively, standing with the body expressing the focus of the soul and the heart. Let us stand well, let us stand with fear. Uh, my teacher, Father, Father Schmemann, used to love at this point to, to refer to something that exists in one of the other liturgies of the church, the liturgy of the Church of Egypt, the Coptic liturgy, where the deacon says, uh, uh, you would laugh if you heard this, they actually do this. Uh, deacon says, let us stand well, let us stand with fear. Mothers, hold your babies. <laughs> let us attend that we may offer the holy offering in peace. And the people respond, offering of peace, set the sacrifice of praise. Christ's own offering, Christ who, who makes peace between God and man. And then the priest gives this special blessing. Usually when the priest gives the blessing, it's with the, with the simple words, peace be to all. But now the priest is going to give Trinitarian blessing because this central prayer, the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer of the anaphora, is a perfect prayer to the Holy Trinity. So the blessing that introduces it is uh, in the name of the Holy Trinity, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the people respond, and with your spirit. You know, that, that exchange of greetings even, the way we always respond to that, uh, you know, peace be to all and with your spirit. Uh, that using that, that uh, form of expression, that, that we're, we're not simply talking between mouth and mouth, but between heart and heart, between spirit and spirit is so important. It's not just saying, and also with you, and with you too. It's, from, it's uh, heart to heart, and with your spirit. Then the, the priest says, let us lift up our hearts. See here, uh, we, we have on, on the one hand a verb of motion, to lift up. That's what the word anaphora comes from. But then we have something that is beyond motion, beyond, beyond geography. We are to lift up our inmost beings, the heart referring to that which is at the center of us. And we take it further in our response. We lift them up unto the Lord. And with the hearts lifted up, then 
the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. And we say it is fitting and right because the sacrifice that we offer is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Just as the Lord at the Last Supper gives thanks for all things before Jesus goes out after the Last Supper to offer himself up for the life of the world, they sing the hymn of thanksgiving. And that hymn of thanksgiving begun by the Lord before his death will be continued by the church until the end of time. That is what the, uh, the, the prayer of the anaphora is. Then we have the first part of the anaphora prayer, which is addressed to God the Father, and it is an offering of thanks. First of all, we thank God for being God, who he is. It is fitting and right to sing to you, to bless you, to praise you, to give thanks to you, to worship you in every place of your dominion. Why? For you are God. Beyond description, beyond understanding, invisible, incomprehensible, always existing, always the same, you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. In the liturgy of St. Basil, and, and by the way, uh, you should understand that the uh, liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is a condensed version of the liturgy of St. Basil. The liturgy of St. Basil that we have 10 times a year, you've been at it a few times now, Christmas Eve, Epiphany Eve, and will be done uh, several times during Lent and during Holy Week. The liturgy of St. Basil is, is the, full, uh, the full expression of the prayer. O truly existing one, Master, Lord God, almighty and adorable Father, how right it is befitting the majesty of your holiness to praise you, to sing to you, to bless you, to worship you, and to glorify you. You alone are truly God. Lord of heaven and earth, of all creation, both visible and invisible, you are seated upon the throne of glory and behold the depths without beginning, invisible, incomprehensible, indescribable, changeless. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great God and Savior, our hope, and so forth. So in the liturgy of St. Basil, we have a, uh, a great development of, of the God who has always eternally with him his Son and his Spirit. And we thank him first, before we even talk about what he does, we thank him for being who he is, for being the one God worshipped in Trinity. Then after we thank him for being who he is, then we thank him for creation. Out of nothing you brought us into being. With that one sentence, everything that was made has been made by God out of nothing. And then furthermore, when we had fallen, raised us up again. So not only do we thank for creation, we give thanks for being saved, for redemption. And you have not ceased doing everything until you brought us to heaven and graciously gave us your future kingdom where we will be united with God completely and fully and share his own life. So we give thanks for creation, for redemption, and for deification, to be united with God. For all these things, we thank you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit for all that we know and do not know. For there are many things that we do not know. St. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, because when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And it's beyond us to know what that will be until it is accomplished in us. So we give thanks for everything that we know and do not know, and that can also be understood as giving thanks to God for his providence in the ways we understand and in the ways we do not understand in our own lives. And then we thank, we thank God also for this liturgy, for this means in which his life for us will be made available, which you are pleased to accept from our hands. And then the first prayer of the Anaphora is again going to conclude by the joining together of the heavenly and earthly. So the Lord is pleased to accept 
this offering from our hands, even though what? He is, there stands before him thousands of archangels and myriads of angels, cherubim and seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring high on their wings, or as the liturgy of St. Basil says, you are praised by the angels, the archangels, the thrones, the dominions, the principalities, the authorities, the powers, and the many-eyed cherubim. The seraphim are around you, each having six wings. With two they veil their face, with two their feet, and with two they fly, continually crying out to one another with mouths that do not grow tired. See, that's the contrast between heaven and earth. Our mouths grow tired as long as we are in this world. But we join in that worship where the mouths do not grow tired singing, proclaiming, shouting the hymn of victory, and then again this hymn that joins heaven and earth, angels and men. Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth means the angelic hosts, the armies of angels. Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is not only one of the earliest hymns of the church, it was also a hymn that was sung in the synagogue, uh, in, the, in the Jewish worship, in the benedictions, the giving of thanks. The expression, Hosanna, that the, the Lord was acclaimed as Messiah on Palm Sunday with, with those words, Hosanna in the highest, means save us now. That, that acclamation, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is Christ himself. Then we continue with the second part of the prayer of the Anaphora. And this prayer is the remembrance, the giving thanks to God for everything that he has done to save us the remembrance of the saving deeds of God. And by remembering the saving deeds of God, the power of the saving deeds of God become present. In the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, it's, it's in very uh, concise form. There's first of all a kind of re-echoing of the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. With these blessed powers, O Lord, who love mankind, we also cry aloud and say, you are holy, most holy, you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. You are holy, most holy, and magnificent is your glory. You have so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, with that sentence, in which, of course, uh, ref is, refers to the words of St. John's Gospel, in the liturgy of St. Basil, as you know, we have the whole, the whole giving thanks for the plan of salvation. I'm not going to read the whole thing now, but it's good to remember what's said there. First of all, we begin with creation. When you had created man by taking dust from the earth and honored him with your own image, you placed him in the paradise of delight, promising him eternal life. But when man disobeyed you, the true God who created him and let, was led astray by the deceit of the serpent and died in his own transgressions, you banished him. Yet you provided for him the salvation of regeneration in your Christ himself. You did not forget the work of your hands. You sent the prophets. You gave the law. And finally, you spoke through your son himself. He is the radiance of your glory and the image of your person. He was God before the ages, yet he appeared on earth and lived among men. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And then the summary of the life of Christ himself, who was born of the woman, the Holy Mother of God, born under the law to condemn sin in his flesh so that, so that we who died in Adam might be brought to life in him, your Christ. He lived as a citizen in this world and gave us commandments of salvation. He released us from the waywardness of idols. He won us for himself as his own chosen people. And then he gave himself over in exchange to death. The sacrifice of, of the Lord is offered up unto death, in which we were held captive, sold under sin, after descending into hell through the cross that he might fill all things with himself. He loosed the bonds of death and rose on the third day and opened to all flesh the path of resurrection from the dead. So. The thanksgiving for what God has done for us by his mighty deeds to save us 
is the giving of thanks that God has not left us to rot in death, that God has not left us held captive by that enemy of our humanity, not, not simply sin, but death that makes it impossible for us to have communion with God. And the whole reason for his coming is to destroy the power of death. And the whole reason for his sacrifice made present now <clears throat> is that we might partake of his deathlessness. And then St. Basil's liturgy goes on to say, summing up this giving thanks to God for what he has done to save us, and as a memorial of his saving passion, we need to always, when we at the Eucharist proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes, remember that the sufferings and death of the Lord are always referred to as his passion. Our passions, our human passions, we speak of as our drives. And maybe that's a good way to understand that the offering of, by Christ of his life was his drive. That's what drove him to give himself up for us, that we might be saved from death. As a memorial of his saving passion, he has left us these things, which we have presented to you according to his command. And then, I'll go back to the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. After he had come and accomplished all that was appointed, on the night in which he was given up, and then the kind of correction there, or rather gave himself up for the life of the world, the voluntary offering. He took bread in his holy, most pure and blameless hands, and when he had given thanks and blessed and sanctified and broken it, he gave it to his holy disciples and apostles, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, for the remission of sins. And we've spoken of these words before, that they are uttered by the voice of the Son of God in the divine present, that the Lord already speaks of himself as offered at the Last Supper, and he remains offered in the Eucharist for the life of the world, for the remission of sins until the end of the world. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. And then we go on to say, words of liturgy of St. Basil, uh, do this as a memorial of me, do this as my memorial. And the memorial, it's very necessary to, to uh, well, I'll speak of this in a moment. The memorial of Christ in his offering to death and rising to new life. Remembering this saving commandment, the commandment to do this as my memorial, and all that has been done for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. Notice that we don't say, in the memorial that, uh, and, and sometimes you, you might think that we would, all that has been done for us. Why don't we say uh, in memorial of the Last Supper? See, Jesus did not say, do this in memory of this meal. He said, do this as my memorial, memory of me. That everything that, who, everything who Christ is, everything that he does, he puts into his memorial, that he leaves us the memory of him, the presence of him who is God, the eternal God. Remembering all those things that he has done for us in which they become present, it's, it's within that context, the memorial of the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension, and the second and glorious coming that we offer, and at this point, the deacon, as the servant of the table, takes the bread and the cup, and what does he do? He crosses his arms to show, to make visible that what is being made present now is the Lord's own offering of himself in his death on the cross, and he lifts up those gifts which 
stand for us, which are us, which stand for Christ's death and which make present Christ's death. We offer you your own from what is your own for everyone and for everything. The same offering, the once for all offering that the Lord Jesus Christ gives himself for the life of the world. And we sing to that a hymn of praise. We praise you, we bless you, we give thanks to you, O Lord, and we pray to you, O our God. It's almost, even though, it's, even though there are words here, it's a kind of speechlessness. Just, we praise, we bless, we give thanks, we pray. O our God. Then we continue on to the third part of the anaphora. And you see how the first part of the prayer gives thanks to God the Father for creation. Gives, first of all, gives thanks to God the Father for, for being God with his Son and Spirit. Gives thanks for creation, gives thanks for salvation. Then we recall, we remember, and make present the saving work of the Son. And now we are going to ask in the third part of the anaphora, for the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit. And this is called, this prayer, the Greek word that, that describes it, it's called the epiclesis, the coming down upon, the calling down upon. 